And I'm often asked, like, how do you see print? I'm like, we're in our golden age now. People are talking about printing human hearts, right? And they're not using painting or sculpting. They're talking about printing. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilsenbrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. Currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relief printmaking, their Woodzilla Presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them accessible whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist while still guaranteeing a beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of paper Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. This week, we have a special episode, a double feature with our sister podcast, Platemark, in which we both release interviews with Luther Davis of Powerhouse Arts in Brooklyn. In my talk with Luther, we go over his life before Powerhouse, how he started his career as a collaborative printer by being dropped into the deep end and printing a huge Richard Serra etching, what he's learned from collaborating with 65 to 100 artists a year, and why he thinks we're in a golden age of print. And when you're done listening to this episode, check out Anne's wonderful conversation with Luther about what things are like now at Powerhouse Arts. And finally, if you want more Anne and Miranda collaborations, well, you're in luck. Because if you're going to be at Print Week in New York, join us on Friday, October 27th from 10 a.m. at the IFPDA Print Fair VIP Lounge for a BYOB coffee meet and greet among print friends. So without further ado, sit back. Relax and prepare to be a powerhouse with Luther Davis. Hi, Luther. How's it going? It's going really great. I'm really excited for this opportunity to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much for agreeing to do the first ever double feature with Hello Print Friend and the Plate Mark podcast, or as Ann and I have been calling it, Hello Plate Mark, <laughs> just in our in our exchange. And I'm really excited to get to know you, to get you know your story more. And that you're coming to us live from Powerhouse, so we might hear some great shop ambiance as we do the recording in the background, because there's people, as I saw, working hard on massive screen prints currently. So I'm just excited to get to know you more, and and I'm sure hear your interesting story of how you came to be sitting here today. Well, thanks. I have to just start off that I'm a a print nerd, and from the first day I started... My first print class, I, I that set this this road in action. So the, I was going over last night, sort of some some of the interesting 
skills that got me here. And it's, let me just start by saying I'm Luther Davis. I'm the director and one of the master printers at Powerhouse Arts Print Shop. We're a nonprofit arts institution on the Gowanus Canal that just recently launched. I've been, when we've been a part of Powerhouse for seven years. I had, I'm working with a team of six master printers, and they have been with me, some of them, for 23 years. So I'd just like to give a shout-out to John Bartolo, Dennis Aroshik, Chris Kinsler, Nellie Davis, Dana Zinzer, Zaire Anderson, and that's, my, that's the crew. So if I use the term we, that's who I'm talking about. And if I use the term I, I'm off, not meaning to speak for them, but they have been printing with me for a long time. Beautiful. Yeah. And so where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Well, I grew up in suburban Cleveland, Ohio, where if you ever fly into Cleveland, you fly into Berea and that's my hometown. So it's one of the shortest commutes to the airport ever. My parents... Always, I was born in Germany on an army base. My parents always loved the arts and were supportive of me experiencing the arts, but they are both teaching physicians, and so science was this big thing that was happening in our house at all times. And I really thought I was going to be a scientist growing up. But every holiday, someone gave me an art, like markers, color markers, paintbrushes, paper. So every, there was someone who was fostering this. And I, always, I don't remember who gave me all the art tools, but... Someone was fostering this artistic side of me the whole time. And from very early age, I started copying freehand comic books. Mm. And I wasn't allowed to read comic books but, but because they wanted me to read book books in my house. But I, w- but I was really, when no one was looking, I was drawing comic books. And I think my love of art was at this pivotal time of learning to draw by looking at someone else's work. And that Mm -hmm. fast forward till now I work with artists and I'm maybe their comic book tracer at times. (laughs) I also in nursery school grew, my nursery school is very near the Cleveland museum of art. And we went there maybe once a month or every two weeks holding hands and walking the Cleveland museum of art and looking at the armor and looking at the lagoon out front and looking at paintings. And as a, so as a nursery school, you're absorbing, as a, as a young person, you're absorbing this and you're just swimming in it. Literally, sometimes I fell into the lagoon outside the <laughs> Cleveland Museum of Art. And so I think that fostering a, was fostered in my, in my house. I never knew anything about print specifically, except for comic books. And when I event, and did not take any art classes in high school, I went to a small liberal arts school named Grinnell College in Iowa and was not doing well in the sciences. They were, mm-hmm. it was a, I went from high school science to very rigorous college science, so I decided to take an intro to drawing class. And week one, the Jill Schrift, the art professor teaching that class, asked if I had ever considered being an art major. And because she, I could draw a figure, drawing all these comic books, I could draw a figure really well. Yeah. And it was that, that's all the encouragement I needed. It was just that, <laughs> right? And I looked at her, thought about it, and called my parents, like, I'm going to be an art major. And that's a dreaded conversation in many of these scenarios. Like, I'm going to be an art major. And they're like, that's great. We always thought you might be in the arts. Like, they, they, they didn't tell me that, right? So they were supportive from the beginning. I studied, the Grinnell was in a transitional phase at that point from what they deemed to be craft-oriented arts so I started studying jewelry, and I really fell in love with making jewelry, small metal works, 
And then they canceled the program. Right when I was going to be oh. a jeweler, they canceled that program. And a friend said, you should take an etching class, a printmaking class, because you'll still get to work with metal. And my professor was Professor Tony Crowley, was a tough professor and a great printmaker. And that's all I needed. I needed, I needed that combination of science and art mm-hmm. and metal. And it was instantaneous love. So that's all the, at that time, that's all the offered at Grinnell College was intaglio processes. So I dabbled monoprints and relief, but really focused on intaglio and old school copper etch, Dutch mordant processes. And it was, it was a, it was a dream. It was a dream scenario because we're in the basement as print shops are often are with a, people that already had taken a couple of printmaking classes and were already like part of the, the cult, the cult for lack of a better word. Larry Gibbons, who currently teaches at U- University of North Texas, was in that class. And so then I fell in love with this idea of print shop as camaraderie, as a community, <laughs> as a way of watching someone else's work. And there were really good artists in that class. They were full-fledged drafts people who could draw anything. And I was learning at an accelerated rate being around them. Yeah. And yeah. so... Yeah, I, I love that metal work to etching. That's that's what happened to Albrecht Durer, you know? There you go. Yes. So you're in a you're in a grand tradition yeah, of printmakers. I wouldn't yeah. think about that time period though, and you had to a plate would have to be pounded and forged, pounded, rolled in order to get a plate. And then you're working by candlelight, right? So <laughs> you know, yeah, an an amazing amazing series of events for most people who I think get in the arts when they don't know they're going to be artists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I would say that I went to a liberal arts school though, and so I was studying science still. I was studying sociology. I was I was you had that school you couldn't really master or spend too much time on any one thing. Yeah, yeah, and so at that point, did you know printmaking was going to be it for you in the arts? You know, you obviously made the decision that you were going to be an arts major, but were you like, okay, this is going to be it for me kind of forever and ever and ever. Amen. Yes. I, I, I was I, once again, limited, limited number of classes I could take. I was instant love and yeah. I didn't want to leave the print shop. I also knew that my next step was my next logical step was in to go get an MFA in print. And so it, the, the, the next step was a shock to everyone who was teaching me art because I'm like, I'm going to be, I'm going to go to MFA program. And they're like, what? Where did this come from? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's funny, liberal arts school, I probably should have said, professed my love early on. Everyone was encouraging, but I was uh, scattered throughout many different subjects. I did not get into any of the eight schools I applied to, Iowa, Indiana, Madison, wherever the MFA programs, none of them accepted me. And I, I knew it was my portfolio. I had like mm-hmm. one sampling of everything I could possibly do. There was no unified body of work. There was no way of speaking about art, although I was a very good writer because that's what that school is about. And so I went to, I made the decision to take continuing ed classes at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, at the Ohio State University. And the continuing education classes were kind of a dream because I set my own tempo I wasn't responsible to anyone myself, mm-hmm. and I was studying with people who are both undergraduate and graduate students in art, in an art environment, which I'd never experienced. And what, at, one of the, at that time, the biggest single campus school in the country, that's 60,000 60, wow. plus students. And going, whatever, 
I had free time to go out to concerts and things yeah. like that in, in rural Iowa. Yeah. But also doubling up, I went, I only knew etching and I got to learn screen printing and lithography and relief in a way I hadn't before. Mm-hmm. At the end of continuing ed, um, I guess I impressed enough people that they asked me to apply and got some t- tuition remission and got to be able to teach some classes. And yeah, it was a, a great, I turned a two-year program into a three-year program, I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and then, so what was the graduate experience like for you? Was it, did you find it a really challenging time in a positive or negative way, I guess? Because challenging can can certainly be yeah. either or. What was your experience? Well, it it was... It was it was challenging in many in many ways in that I was suddenly amongst art students who had been art students for four years and and had expectations about you know how one sp- speaks about art and how one critiques art and uh, while I had some exposure to that in undergraduate these were in my mind professional art students and so I, I learned at accelerated rate it was a very welcoming community. The printmaking department at that time was Charles Massey Jr. and Philip Von Robbie, two wonderful instructors who really pushed me in completely different ways. And then there were eight, eight graduate students in print, who, by the way, are all still in print. Uh, close friend Chris Danagelis, who was my MFA um, studio mate, if you will, we shared a show, is teaching at University of Missouri to this day. So it's really, we're still doing it. And that's the other thing when you're in school, you don't realize that like this might be the path for everyone around you, not just you. Right? Yeah. So that you're, you're in that moment as a young person and don't realize that everyone, everyone is part of this community, will still be the part of the community. They're in it. They really are in it. So it's, it was exciting in that regard. Ohio State had an amazing photo mechanics department. And that's something I really fell in love with. In, at Grinnell, I, ran, I was one of the darkroom monitors. So I loaded camera and help people process film and help them process their photos, enlarge their photos. And so I became, I think, one of the most uh, meaningful things was I became the photo mechanics room tech, which meant I, read, I ran a 30-foot-long brown copy camera and learned how to make halftones using line screens and color separations mm-hmm. using filters and stop baths and fix it. I learned old-school photo photo, printmaking photo, darkroom skills, which at the end of my MFA, they decided many, many, this is, so let me set, that, set the year so that we can be a little more descriptive. Mm-hmm. This is 1996 is when I got my MFA. So this is mid nineties. Photoshop was entering into the question large, there weren't like large Epsons, but Photoshop, digital processing. I took my first web design class. I didn't even know what the web was. Wow, so, you yeah. know, you're, we're talking about a, a critical crux of technologies meeting. And um, the printmaking department there was uh, moved off the main campus to make room for a digital art, the new form of, of media. So I was really in this caught in this uh, two worlds colliding situation. And, and, um, and I think at that time, people were... We're talking about challenging time. People were fighting for, like, the, what what art will be, and and what and what is art. And I guess this is true throughout time. The same questions as te- new technologies arise. So it was really a, a world of, at Ohio State, a large school. You could take a photo class 
making holograms, and you could do a mesotint class, and I could be in a darkroom making old school halftones. So these conversations were really important at the time. Yeah. Um, when you were in it, what was your impression of those conversations? Were you someone who really leaned into the technological side of things? Did you think it was going to push things out? Did you think there was going to be a marriage of it? Were you thinking that this is something we didn't need? What was like being in that really interesting time period? What was that sort of emotionally like and like as an artist? I, I think that for me, it was, I really thought every, a tool is a tool. Like uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we're coming into this and a tool is a tool. And these are all new. None of these tools I knew existed until barely with flat, like a five-year window. And so here's a new tool. And so I had no like romantic notions of like Kodak photo resist as the ultimate way of etching a plate mm-hmm. all i knew is wow this is a really toxic process and there maybe you don't want to be around this and no, no one uses that anymore right it, right so there are things that are are gone from the process that met, were meant to leave and then but you know falling in love with copper giant truckloads full of copper sheets arriving that that sort of romantic thing of divvying up the spoils of the copper and cutting them down the size <laughs> of usual that sort of thing i really loved and so the chemistry, once I had the chemistry and the dark room, I love being in the dark room. And there were no, no notions at that time that Photoshop would replace a dark room. Like yeah. there's no, like the tools in Photoshop was so preliminary, but they were still using things like a burn tool and they still do burn right. and dodge yeah. tools, mm-hmm. right? These are, these are terms from traditional photo, photo dark rooms that Photoshop was using. There was no, there was no idea that this stuff, one would replace the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. At that time. So, but you, you did have the traditional, so you had more entrenched factions and people were becoming polarized around what, what were art practices. And print, I think, has always had a, a unique fighting stance as far mm-hmm. as this goes, because we are, we are mercantile, we have industrial roots, we, have, we, we were the source of all knowledge in libraries, we were printing them. Huh? And suddenly I'm taking the, like, typing my first web page and not knowing that as I'm making my first website that this is going to replace the learning as I know it in many ways, right? And, and the yeah. conversation that we're having now. You know? Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit. I actually spoke with Simone from the Il Bisante in Florence, their shop. I don't know if you know them, but they've been around since the 1950s. His great aunt started it and they've like did all the printed with Picasso, did all of mm-hmm. that. And we were talking about his experience in it and having these new technologies come up. And the thing that we ended up saying is that it's like printmaking meets the new tech and then it just eats it. <laughs> it's just, just like, like you think you're going to replace me? It's like, no, I'm actually the fish that's going to like come and swallow yeah, yeah. and make you a part no, of it. Completely. And then I'm also going to smash this old technology into it and really, mm-hmm. really see what can happen. hundred percent. I love that. Yeah. Um, absolutely love that. And I'm Austin asked like, how do you see print? I'm like, we're in our golden age now. You know, that's how I yeah. feel about it. Like there, the people are talking about printing human hearts, right? And they're not using painting or sculpting. They're talking about printing, right? And so the, the print in the vernacular means something that it hadn't, hasn't necessarily meant. And it's a disruptive technology as it always has been. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of, you know, part of the lore that we should embrace. I love that. And I also think that we're in a time where, 
education about printmaking and exposure about printmaking is better than it's ever been. You know, Instagram has done amazing things yeah. for print yeah. because it is, I think, the most cinematic process <laughs> because you get you get your big bang, you get your moment of reveal, mm-hmm. and the other sort of major schools of art and and media. I mean, you've got your opening of the kiln, but that it doesn't, even that doesn't have the like, where there was nothing, there is something now to the same extent that print has. And so it's great for the, that, that moment, no matter how much goes actually goes into leading up to it, but that moment of the reveal is wonderful for the shortened attention span <laughs> for sure the, the TikTok three and a half second yeah. golden yeah, hour, and, right? And you can also incorporate the sound of that plate mm-hmm. peeling the ink off, that stickiness if that's in there, yeah. It's now, totally. that, I often pick up a print and smell it first. The first thing my instinct is to smell it, right? And so that doesn't come across necessarily on yeah. uh, social media, but you know the, the sights and sounds of art making, right? And in, by the way, to recap what you said, we have Active Studio behind us where we're working on roughly... 40 different projects right now at the same time. Yeah. And so this, this, this moment of reveal is still the, is still the juice that I'm seeking. It's mm-hmm. still the magic. And even though I've made a million prints and I, I have expectations, what's it, what's going to happen? That first one is pure magic. And this is for yeah. someone who's, I'm, I'm, I'm not jaded at all. I really love it. As I said, I'm a printer, but that first reveal is still like, Oh wow, it, it works, you know, or, or, yeah. you know, like, Oh, that's why did that happen? And then, so, you know, it's it's always it's always a, a new thing, and it I never th- it never gets old. It's it's magic every time. We at Powerhouse Arts we do have ceramics, so we are having a big kiln reveal. Oh, and nice! We do, and we do have something called a ram press, where you can very printmakily make objects and vessels. So I'm I'm what I'm learning, and I'm not I'm not disagreeing with your idea of print as the ultimate reveal. What I'm learning is that everyone I'm watching using their tools, that, that the common thread is that that excitement for that, for that thing, right? That for that thing to be born. And uh, that's part of collaborating with artists uh, that I love so much is you, when you're a printmaker sharing a shot with other artists, you get to watch their amazement through the process. And, yeah. and you know, that's social media, right? That's what, uh, we're going to harken back to what you just said. Um, and so when were you first aware that collaborative printmaking could be a thing that you obviously you could be an artist, you can make your own work, but there's this whole other side and whether you call it publishing or collaborative printmaking or whatever you want, but there's a really long tradition and going back to Rembrandt, or I guess, no wait, Rembrandt did make his own plates. He was weird that way, but going back (laughs) to, let's say the 16th century where image makers who are versed in other media would come to someone who knew printmaking media and you could make a whole life doing that as well. When did you first learn about that? And was it uh, interesting to you? So I think that uh, it was at no time did someone say this was a thing you could do, right? Mm. As, as like a group effort, as a collaborative spirit until I actually got into that world. So the part of that path, I think in undergraduate and graduate school was the art as a solo pra- practitioner, but you are, for me, I'm in this. I'm in the print shops. I'm engaged in the community. I'm excited by it. I didn't know how I was excited by it until after I got my MFA and I bought my own press and set up in my own shop, and was struggling with like, why? Why am I doing this again? Like, uh-huh. I I didn't realize how much I missed that collaborative energy, 
And suddenly I had my own etching press, my own shop, and I didn't want to be in it because there was no one there but me. Right. So yeah. I think that might have been that might have been the first awakening to you need people around you, and this is part of the fun. In 1997, I was painting houses during the day. I was doing trompe finishes, painting garden walls on kitchen drywall, and mm-hmm. and fake carpet running down wooden stairs <laughs> and uh, trying to print at night. And then my partner at the time and announced that they were moving to New York and I asked if I could come and they said, sure. So part of my next task was moving my print shop to New York. And I just happened to go into a bar downtown Columbus. We had finished painting a house and the bartender who barely knew me knew I was a printmaker and said, I have a f- I'm moving to New York. I have a friend in New York who's a printmaker and they're leaving New York. Huh. Maybe you can get their job. Yeah. And I'm like, sounds, that sounds great. And so the long story of how I learned that collaboration was where I wanted to be was my first printmaking job as a professional was at Noblaze Serigraphy. So that, lo and behold, that person's last day was my first day. I got uh-huh. for the job. John Eve Noblaze ran a shop where he had one assistant. He was the master printer director. A wonderful shop where... I got to meet some of my my absolute heroes of art, like people I wrote my thesis on, oh, no. um, like within the first weeks. So, and and got to actually sit down with artists and talk about how they make their art and how I can help them make their art, and feel needed and wanted, and know that I didn't have the answers and that I would have to ask other people for help. Mm-hmm. So that I think that that's where, but to answer your question, that's at, working for Jean Yves Noble. Late 90s, Meatpacking District, New York is where I really learned the love of collaboration. Yeah. And so at what point did you decide to start your own business or endeavor in working directly with artists yourself and producing limited editions and working with artists that you were excited about? So that I have always worked with a sponsor, if you will. So Jean-Yves mm-hmm. Noble, the uh, master printer I studied in, gave me great access and a huge wealth of knowledge. And I just want to go back to Jean-Yves as my mentor, who I had into print jobs. My first, my first print job that he hired me for was printing a huge Richard Serra etching Oh my gosh, no um, pressure. For, yeah, for, a, <laughs> for, for a Leo Castelli's 90th birthday portfolio, which included nine of artists he made famous, and 90 prints, nine artists. And I, this is the first project as a professional printer I stepped into. And so uh, Richard Serra, Bruce Nauman, Roy Lichtenstein, Rauschenberg. I'm, at, I, I'm gonna have to, oh, I'd have to Google to find out who. So um, that's, that's, I mean, honestly, that's, that might be, that's enough. Like just yeah, those guys. And, <laughs> yeah, it was. And I just said, I said, and the, and the Sarah was really interesting project in that there were no guidebooks to there was a aesthetic but no one who was doing Richard Sarah etching Gemini or anyone else would wanted to tell us how they did it so we had to I had to start with what I knew from graduate school learning from Philip von Rabi and apply like what what could be the next steps if I mm-hmm. had more money and more resources. And sorry, this is a long way of getting to your story. Um, no, so your question. This is, this is a really <laughs> fascinating idea that that your first project is to be just dropped in. To yeah, the- just dro- absolutely parachuted in, and like so excited. This is Meatpacking District, 1997. Uh, our, my shop 
uh, Noble Serigraphy was two floors above Matthew Barney's studio. He needed scenic painters, so every once in a while at night I'd go help Matthew Barney with his projects. Above us was a skateboard company called Zoo York, who was just getting mm-hmm. started. So there was fashion and skates and, and stuff happening there. And it was the meatpacking true. Like we talked about the meatpacking district in New York from this antiquated notion of there once was a meatpacking district, but there was blood on the streets, carcasses wow. came in on trucks at 3 a.m. and were swung on like this trolley system and it disappeared in the building to be processed. So in it, so as I said, I parachuted in for Leo Castelli's 90th birthday project and and had to sort of tackle a project as a collaborator with an artist who would never give me an input until they saw the final thing. Wow. So, but I, which was really fun because each print, it was, they were big. Each print took one pound of ink, each print, <laughs> an entire can was one, one, one can of ink. And then I had to come up with ways of drying and all this stuff which was inventing. But meanwhile, I met Lothar Osterberg, who's an amazing photogravure printer. And I wanted to say that in Noble Serigraphy, at this time, Don Eve's wife, Karen McCready, had a print gallery as a sole representative for Crown Point Press in New York and worked with Tandem. And so I would open up the elevator doors and be confronted by the best prints I'd ever seen in my life. And it was rotating. Every day I get schooled. Uh-huh. Right, and so I'm wiping hours, wiping these stairs, and just looking across the, at the, the space at a Deben corn or whatever it was that was up, and just like uh, measuring my little steps based on <laughs> truly great work in print. That was just the daily schooling. Yeah. Let alone everyone else who was coming in there. So it, to answer your question, I never really wanted to do it on my own. And when tragically Karen McCready died in 2000, coupled with a, a giant dot-com surge in real estate prices in New York, Meatpacking bis- District was on fire at various times those last years. As mm. I think people were, don't, I guess you are going to quote me on this, but as, as a building were mysteriously set on fire, like yeah. multiple ones in one summer. Yeah. So I think artists were pushed out of that community. Print was leaving, meat was leaving. And uh, Jean-Yves saw the writing on the wall, also with the death of his wife, Karen, and sold his shop to Axel, Bertrand Delacroix. And I was only, I it's a beautiful shop. Uh, formerly a shop called, before it was Noble Serigraphy, it was called Chroma Comp. It was so historically a shop that Andy Warhol would subcontract work out to. So we had pedigree equipment and machines and this beautiful facility. So I went with the machines. I went, mm-hmm. so from there, I was asked if I wanted to direct the next shop as an only employee and went where the machines went. I think this is common in a lot of printmakers' <laughs> scenarios is that they follow right. the presses, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the printer is just sort of, yeah, handcuffed to the machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and gleefully so in this case. And Bertrand Delacroix, who bought the print shop, built a bespoke shop around what I thought my needs were at the time. We had one semi-automatic screen press, a brand press, and a lot of racks and we so we, we built a sharp shop from scratch with architects it was so that so that i went from there to how do i how do i build a shop so this is where your question how do i build a shop how do i staff a shop uh, john bartolo one of the master printers here was my first hire this is 23 years ago he got the job as a side of moving our shop as a side job from his paper restoration job and so mm-hmm. he became the just by 
default became my first print shop employee and he had a lot of paper handling experience but hadn't made a print and so we sort of just grew so that shop xl editions survived for 15 years on atlantic avenue we worked with some amazing artists at that space it was a really interesting art deco building that was known in the neighborhood Mm. and i would say during that time i learned that the title master printer which was bequeathed i mean many people find that title master problematic and it is in many regards but the master in this was mastering skills in my mind and Mm -hmm. mastering you know you're mastering the running a business so many skills to sort of learn and grow into when you're Mm -hmm. trying to run a shop and that's what that 15 years really was and so during that time are there any particular projects that stick out to you whether they just have a good story attached to them where they have a name attached to them that you still look back on as a delight to work with because you know you just sort of like yeah it's just 15 years but like surely (laughs) many things happened time so 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 many things happened some projects carried over from noblay through v to axel one was care walker's portfolio emancipation approximation that where we uh jean-yves and i printed the bulk of the edition and i had to print the frontispiece in at excel while that building was being built around us, we were doing etching additions in the basement, like while construction workers were all around us. Wow. But did the, they, sorry, just out of, of yes. curiosity, did the construction workers ever notice what you were printing? Because yeah, Kara Walker's work tends to be kind of head turning. Yeah. So there was a lot of, there's a lot of interesting work they were doing where people were like, huh, what is this thing you're doing? Like, mm-hmm. no, so that's the other thing. We, I mean, every printer has always been at a party. What do you do? I'm a printmaker. And if you're, say, your screen printer, they're going to, do you print t-shirts? I have a right, band. Right. So a lot of, of what Axel's mission was, because he was an art publisher, was to expose people to the process mm-hmm. and to put it front and center on Atlantic, one of the busiest streets in Brooklyn. His idea was that people were going to engage the shop in a new, meaningful way. So yes, the construction workers, the framers, he had, uh, Bertrand had been selling prints for years, but now patrons could actually see them being made. So, I mean, yeah, we were, we were a, I wouldn't say we were a teaching shop, but we were on display for, and also I want you to keep in mind that we were battling the new digital revolution. Right. right? And they were, this thing had entered the market this time called G-Clays, right? Mm-hmm. Which no, I don't think anyone uses really, and they use archival pigment per, uh, print now. But the Bertrand was doubling down on the fact that there was crafts people making color by color prints in the old school way at his, his French leaning atelier. Right. And Mm -hmm. he was battling the digital revolution. So we entered there with no Photoshop, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't have a dark room. We were airbrushing and Ruby lift and drawing and key plating 30 to 60 color editions of 300. Right. So big additions, lots of colors. So there were lots of stand, alone projects that were most people would consider a reproductive commercial fine art mm-hmm. where, where they, these are wonderful prints that had a larger audience, more universal appeal. I'm not going to use any pejorative terms here. And we were hand drawing every plate. Right. Yeah. And then at some point we got Photoshop, like I, 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 Photoshop entered the picture. We were outputting films. There was no dark room. So we had to come up with a solution. But during that time, Lorna Simpson, Glenn Ligon, a bunch of artists that came with us from Noblesse Rugby came with us to Excel. So we, while we were doing these commercial prints, which were like 
bizarre and bewildering to many people who are making fine art, New York fine art, contemporary prints. We were learning the skill set of what it meant to like make prints all day, every day, right? Mm -hmm. And for anyone who came through the door, like, what do you need made? So this sort of fee for services, Kinko, there's no Kinkos anymore either. Right. <laughs> uh, but this copy shop mentality towards a fine art atelier, where what do you need? What's your budget? When do you need it by? Um, that was how that shop at Excel evolved. Um, and so some of the seminal projects, um, working with Lorna, working with Glenn Ligon. At that time, there was a gallery called Exit Art, and every year they released a portfolio. And we did, for many years, every artist in that portfolio. So we were getting ac access to some wonderful artists that way. And we did... And we still do close to there was actual proper editions. We were doing a hundred editions a year. And so and and standalone print. So it's hard to pick out a clear from that blur, it's hard to pick out clear, like these are the things I'm most proud of. But yeah. besides the artists that I mentioned, one of the things that came from that period that are most was most meaningful is that Glenn Baldridge and I formed a publishing company called Fourth Estate. Mm -hmm. F-O-R-T-H, estate. And we formed it from an interest in working, of making prints with people that we wanted to see published and friends, right? So one of the problems with being a contract printer is that you only get to work with artists that you're asked to print. And you can't just go into a show and say, wow, this artist would make a great print and how do I get to work with them? So Glenn had the bright idea of, well, let's start our own publishing company. We'll put sweat, sweat equity into it. We'll print it ourselves, publish it ourselves, sells it, sell it, sell it ourselves. And then we'll get to work with artists that we want to work with. And most of them were friends, right? And so we, the idea was that we would, on the weekends, get a six-pack, make an edition, right? That sort of print shop mentality. And when, you know, and I didn't want to leave the print shop. So it was a, a great way of working for a long period of time. We did some really sort of interesting cutting edge prints at, at, for that time using UV technology that no one had been using, UV cured inks that no one had been really using at that time, some hybrid processes, joining forces with Phil Sanders at Bob Blackburn and other print shops, and really trying to like extend a conversation to our generation because we weren't being invited to show at IFPDA. We weren't being invited to show at EAB at that time. And so we just thought we'd forge our own path. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that because I think so often it's hard not to be out in the art world and see artists where you're like, oh, I, I would love to see them do a woodcut. I would love to see this in a lithograph. Mm. I'd love to see mm. this in an etching. Mm -hmm. But yes. they may not be in a position where they can have a gallery back up up, but back an addition for them or whatever it is. And so to just have a place where you can manifest the prints you want to see in the world, that sounds so rewarding. It, it really was. And at that moment in time, once again, there, there was, so this is 2005, the web was a thing, right? Mm -hmm. So you, the internet was a thing. Old man says web. The internet was a thing. And, but not everyone had websites. Artists didn't have websites. Or, or, you know, it wasn't, a sales platform the way it is now. Right. And so the fairs were still a place you would show. And so you, 
you're working kind of in, you weren't posting thing on Instagram or Facebook at that time. You weren't marketing yourself as we market ourselves now. So you would get together, you'd make an addition, you'd wait for a fair cycle, you'd show it. And eventually we're showing at EAB. And when we was through some courageous curating by Janice Orsman and Coffin from Print Center, John Morning, who knew what interesting work we were doing and that we had no platform for showing it. And they gave us our first foray into EAB and some other Great. shows. Yeah. And so we were entered into the field of like, wow, we had this body of work and no one's seen it. And it got gobbled up. And so that week at Fourth Estate was active from 2005 to 2015. And in those pre-marketing yourself selling things on the internet, we would roll into the EAB and just be collecting checks and cash. And, and that would feed us for the next year and, and sponsor all of our further publishing. At some point, that turn where people would take your business card and think about it. Right. And then we, and then we had become online salespeople, which we never were. So Yeah. Um, yeah. And so with all the the experience that you've had with Axel and then Fourth Estate and all of that, what would you say are some real gems that you've you've mined in that experience for the experience of collaborating with an artist and and making something that you're both proud of and that you come away thinking that this was a positive experience too on the other side? That's a great question. I, I've, I've had the, a great time listening to your podcast and Plate Mark and listening to everyone's approach, mm-hmm. uh, being so specific to their shops and their locations and often their climates that they're in. Totally. Yeah. Um, in Brooklyn, when I started directing Axel, I was seeking out direction on how one does this. And no one, they were like, kid, if you come near my print shop, I'm calling you. <laughs> it was that mentality. So I had to sort of invent the process that would seek the high demand that we were finding. Right. Of people wanting, like, wanting work next week. And screen is that kind of process, right? Mm-hmm. We were also doing etchings very, at very quick pace. So I think that the shop that we formed and the collaborative spirit that we formed was that really a community shop mentality where the artist isn't sequestered, the shop isn't like, and Jean Eve would often say, you need to clean this place. Um, As my mentor, he could always tell me the way I wasn't quite doing things <laughs> in his mind. But the, the, the projects that were out, that we were working actively on, were part uh, and parcel for the next artist's experience. And they could react to what was live on the presses at any given moment. So we weren't cleaning the shop whole hog of every trace of another artist and creating a sans visual or one artist visual collaboration spirit. There were artists coming in and they were meeting there. They were responding to work on on the racks. I mean, I remember once we had an artist that we were, a designer we were working with and they said, I really would like this to look like I don't know. Uh, I'm really a big fan of Rebecca Quaitman. And I'm like, Rebecca? This, this <laughs> like, so in the next press, Rebecca was working. Rebecca, this awesome. artist would love to meet you. And yeah. so like, but just these sort of things happened all the time. So the collaborative spirit that is rewarding, I think, for me is the fact that these are actively engaging uh, the artists on what their project means to them in the moment, reacting to sort of what perceive, and I think this is 
what perceived notions of the project might be going in. We are trying to adapt this process of whatever the print process we're using to the artist's needs and aesthetic and trying mm -hmm. to be inventive each and every time in a new way for the artist. And so screen printing, there's tons of new materials to print on. There's tons of new inks. You can call a chemist and have them make something if there isn't an ink. There really is a kind of a universal industrial appeal to the process that the artists, like, you can source materials, you can do R&D. So the collaborative energies of one R&D um, for one artist then feed you know, a few generations of artists as well, but also the long-term 25 years of doing this, some of the artists that I start with, started with 25 years ago, we have a shorthand of talking about the work right, that we're I going bet. to be making. Remember that time in 2005 when we did and we pull up the thing on the, on the internet, of like the image and like, how did we get this? And then maybe we documented, maybe we didn't, but then we, we can lean into an, old, an, an older work for, and mine it for this new, new content. Um, so that's, that's part of the collaborative spirit. Also artists, as I said, reacting to other artists, it's really kind of fun how, how some artists that maybe haven't made work with us for a, for a while will come back to us after five or 10 years and, and make a new project. And then the first, the people we're coming in are the, I mean, we, you currently now have to say, please don't take any photos, don't publish this online. But right. this is, you're getting a sneak peek into someone's artist practice. And so that leads to a different kind of collaborative energy where we're not being secretive about the things we do. We're not gatekeeping how we do things. Mm -hmm. um, we're spreading the wealth. I also teach at, at the new school, Parsons Print Shop, and really believe that each, each, each artist is going to stumble into the process their own way, right? And that there are, there are some things, well, if you do it that way, we have these five things to contend with that might be ruinous to your project. But like pick the, pick the one thing, right? And not all of the five things. Yeah, it's so, I, I think we have, as collaborators, we have a bag of, bag of mistakes that we made <laughs> that we lean into, right? Yeah. The impression I got from it really is that it's difficult to make broad sweeping universal here's the key that will fit every lock you know here's the missing puzzle piece for every project because as you spoke to studios are different artists are different who's in the print shop that can affect an outcome both the artists or your fellow collaborators so I think that what you spoke to really did answer it in the sense that it's like okay so it is it is sort of ever-changing but keeping that spirit of flexibility as well as the joy of collaboration together is be on your toes and be in joy. That's what yeah. I, yeah, it's I true. took from it. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's a good take. And I, you can also over long periods of time working with people, expect them to be the same person that like a year to year, they, they come in, in, in a, and might need to be fires might to be, might need to be rekindled or they come in so hot that you need mm. to like, we need to take a step back and we need to plan this out. So yeah, also I don't want to speak for uh, my wonderful print team at Powerhouse Arts, but each one has a different way of collaborating too, which right. is kind of, which is really fun to watch all of them mature in over this long period of time from maybe not knowing how to collaborate. And I, and I didn't. Johnny was my best sort of case for how one collaborates. And Johnny was always like, let's just try. 
So, right? yeah. so that's that's how we that's the let's just try. Let's just let's experiment, and if it breaks, it's broken, and then maybe mm-hmm. we'll learn something. I love that when our good friends Kili Kong Notai and his team at Shanghai Art on Paper, they have something really similar. They just say, "Just try, just try." Mm-hmm. Just yep. try. So it's just like, it's like mm-hmm. that, that spirit even several thousand miles away and the print shop yeah. is still there where particularly for me, where I'm like a really lo- logistic person, I want, I want things to be safe. I'm, you know, a planner. And so if we're working on yeah. something, I'll often come with like, well, if this happened, then this will happen. And if this happens, then this will happen. And he's just like, shh, shh, shh. <laughs> just try, just try. Yep. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, it, it, it is true. And I think that, the, by the way, the level of trust that one has to have for just try and then collaborative energy too. It's like, I have this other thing over here that we could try that's mm-hmm. sort of like this. And so mom um, often asks, like, do you make your own work? And occasionally I do, but most of the work that I want to see made, I get to work with other people's process. Yeah. So if I'm in the shower and I have, wow, I've just got, wow, wow, I could suddenly have, and you're, I don't think Eureka moments happen, but when you're best rested, best in your moment, you're like, wow, I have this idea. And, and in my case, I like, you know who would love this idea? Right. And then I get to send the email, give the call, like I've got this idea for a print project. And so I think part of the artist practice that is ongoing for me and this love of the, the materials and the matrixes and everything is that who would who 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 could best use this 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 idea or this concept and so when that just try is is then when there's trust with the just try mm-hmm. right then it's another level of collaboration yeah absolutely and we're collaborating with 65 to 100 artists a year it's amazing in a very kind of and we're trying to create a unique environment for each one to the degree that i've already described and uh, some artists don't glom on then and then glom on the idea of like there's gonna someone someone's gonna come in in the next hour but others really as we, we mentioned others feed off of it so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and so in the time that that we have left as i mentioned at the top we're gonna do this two-parter cliffhanger Maybe you can kind of walk us up right up to powerhouse, sort of, and then when you chat with Anne, it can kind of take over from there. So, so what happens in between 2015 and and working with powerhouse for you? Well, uh, the fascinating turn of events were that Bertrand Delacroix, the owner of Axel. Uh, died tragically in a hang gliding accident. Oh, my gosh. Um, and hang gliding was his joy. Hang gliding was, it gave him energy. We had at, at Axel, there was a gallery in Boston and San Francisco and Soho and Chelsea and New Orleans at one point. So being up in the air far above all of that, all, and not being able, no one could connect with him, right? Right. No, like emails, no, yeah. there's no phone. He would actually fly with his, one of his dogs, which was a thing. The dogs loved it, apparently. I wasn't ever a part of that, by the way. I've seen, yeah. I've seen yeah. some things online with yeah. dogs looking very yeah. chill on hand gliders. Yeah. So <laughs> apparently dogs love hand gliding. Yeah. yeah. Pugs, pugs, pugs. They're specifically <laughs> pugs. Um, so he, it was, a, it was a tragic turn of events. We got the call and now it's like, that's it right? That, that's the end, right? And we had built this dream shop, this dream world, and all these clients we serve, that's, that's the end of Excel. And I, I've got to wrap up projects. Bertrand, Bertrand didn't have a will. Uh, oh, wow. And no next of kin. And so his, the, all of his estate went to his mother and father. 
And they, I'd been printing Michelle Delacroix's work for years and they gave me all the equipment. Mm. Mm-hmm. And just like Luther, this is your, this is your shop. You should have it. And we were given a timeline to wound on projects. And in that time, we were starting to look as a, as a group on what our next steps would be. And so we developed business plans. We looked at shot spaces. And it was not good. The, the real estate market at that point, recovering, uh, it was just, it was a tough, it was tough to find any space that, well, Bertrand, I'm going to be honest, Bertrand never really charged us rent. So we had right. a studio where we never had rent and some were entering a market where we had rent. And we were, yeah. we were famously covered all of our costs, costs as far as he was concerned, but we never had to pay market, market rent. So we were entering into a field where suddenly we were the real life exposure of what market rent would be. Right. Um, I, Glenn, my partner at Fourth State, Glenn Baldridge, mentioned that he had a friend who had just joined a a project in reconditioning a building, right? That's all I knew. And that there probably, there might be room for a print shop. And so I met with Katie Dixon at that point, who was the executive director of Powerhouse Arts. And there were only four people in the company at this time. And brought on, she loved the print shop, knew we were in trouble, knew that we were supporting a community of artists and a huge body of work, and knew that Powerhouse's mission was to support this kind of work. Right. So Powerhouse was formed to save and preserve a historic power plant on the Gowanus Canal. And it was in need of EPA remediation, remediation, I should say, to EPA standards, and the building to be saved, shored up, and preserved. As, and, and at a time when most of the Guanus was going to be turned residential. And so Paras' long plan was to save this building and make it an arts facility. And we didn't know what that was at the time. Through some series, a year-long series of roundtables hosted by Triple Canopy, and with artists and with fabricators, it, what came out of those Triple Canopy roundtables were that fabrication shops like mine were being forced out of the city mm-hmm. through price hikes in real estate and that the commercial real estate was driving us out. And we all knew that there was. Yeah. And so powerhouse as a foundation doubled down on this idea of saving fabricators roles to in preserving these jobs and the jobs platforms that jobs training platforms they create uh, for the New York uh, cultural experience. And wow. so we, we came on as a guinea pig. We were renamed BRT Print Shop, mm-hmm. for, which stood for Brooklyn Rapid Transit. We are, that's where Powerhouse is the Brooklyn Rapid Transit Power Station. Uh, we moved into an old varnish factory, Keystone Paint and Varnish, in uh, old varnish factory in Red Hook, um, which I have to say was an ideal. It was built in 1911. It was made to make varnish. So yeah. like, it's the ideal shop to move our print shop in because it all this like, 19 early 1900s technology for getting gas out of a building and vapors out of a building oh this is perfect yeah solar chimneys and passive air movement and all this amazing stuff that we just by the way keystone invented and branded the first lead-free paint called nature's harmony in the shop we're in so that's great uh, 1915 and their tagline was because lead kills so 1915 already already trying to get the lead out yeah and so that was, we were there, it was, it was supposed to be three-year turn in that studio. It ended up being six years mm-hmm. in as a BR, BRT. And then we were formally, our guinea, our guinea pig 
phase ended and we were brought into Powerhouse Arts as their first fabrication facility. And that's where we ended up and what was and how we ended up with Powerhouse Arts. And what was interesting about this time was they were learning about us, what it meant to manage artists' expectations, fabricators' expectations, provide some best practices for the build. And then meanwhile, we were being brought in to build our dream silkscreen studio, which I'm currently in now. Um, and yeah, it was, I, I can't, it was like a whirlwind of events. We yeah. built out a temporary shop. By the way, the Axel shop was built into the building. So that space, we took out the windows, swung all the equipment in, put the windows in, and we couldn't get out the oh equipment without, much of the equipment without destroying the windows and we designed that we deemed that too costly so many of the historic presses from chroma comp and noble were scrapped for scrap metal oh yeah so yeah so we we re we rejiggered the studio with everything that could fit out our elevator yeah. we do have a lot of equipment from that area but so then we we're in the process of rebuilding and yeah wow and uh there you will pick up with ann schaefer <laughs> Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's been a delight and uh, thank you. I really enjoyed very much hearing your story and how you came to things. And I'm really excited to share it and do this, this little double feature project with you and Anne. And I'm, I'm only uh, a few hours outside of the city now, so well, I would love to come see it in please, person. Please come anytime. And the fabrication f- facilities here are state of the art. They're beautiful. And recently, this year, we finally, after flying under the radar, had our unveiling, if you will. So we just opened our the public's knowledge of us existing after seven years. So. Incredible. Well, I'd love to stop by. Maybe we can do like a Instagram live tour of, yeah. uh, of Powerhouse. That. that would be really would fun. That. And then you'll get to smell the prints. They're here. That's the they're best not, part. They're not actually smelling. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, still but smell I know what you mean. Like yes, the ink yes. and the paper. It's it's very important. It's the worst thing about the podcast. No smells. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Luther. You, and um, we'll definitely be in touch with like when we're releasing it. And of course, again, I, I really hope to see the shop in person soon. Great. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be the wonderful Jesus de la Rosa. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Oh,